By the way, C, I loved your Cardinal Richelieu story. You kind of fumbled one element of the bluff, though. What's that? He died two years before he issued your so-called 1644 <laughs> proclamation. Oh, detail, detail. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the next imponderable. Most supermarkets carry white eggs and brown eggs. Why do some chickens lay brown eggs and others lay white eggs? Oh, this is simple. It's totally a matter of genetics. Some breeds lay white eggs and other breeds lay brown eggs. Not a bad bluff, eh? Although it is obviously wrong. The correct answer, of course, is B. That the color of the egg depends upon what the chicken is fed. Chickens who eat corn and alfalfa lay white eggs. Those who eat wheat or barley lay brown eggs. Since corn feed costs less than wheat, most chickens lay white eggs. Oh, you guys almost had me believing you. Of course, all chickens lay brown eggs. Poultry producers then bleach the shell to give the shoppers the clean appearance they like. Health food nuts prefer the natural brown eggs, just as they prefer unbleached flour. A says that the color of the egg is dependent upon the breed of the chicken. B says the color depends upon the feed. And C claims that all chicken eggs are originally brown, but most are bleached white. Do you think the correct explanation is A, B, or C? You have 10 seconds to make your decision. The correct answer is A. The only determinant of egg color is the breed of the chicken. The color of eggs comes only from the pigment in the outer layer of the shell, and they range from an almost pure white to a deep brown, with many shades in between. But I, I thought I read somewhere that feed determines the color of the shell. I think you're confusing the color of the shell with the color of the yolk. If a chicken is given light-colored feed, such as white corn, the yolk will be almost colorless. Fed yellow corn, the yolk will be bright yellow. Well, Dave, is it true that brown eggs are more nutritious than white eggs? Not any more than that brown M&Ms are more nutritious than yellow ones. <laughs> is there any way to tell by looking at a chicken whether it's going to lay white eggs or brown ones? You won't believe this, but it's true. If you want to know the color of a chicken's eggs, check out the color of its earlobes. If they're white, the hen will lay white eggs. If the earlobes are red, she will produce brown eggs. I didn't even know chickens had earlobes. I certainly don't plan on confirming this personally. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Settle down, guys. Time to move on. When a hockey player scores three goals in one game, it's called a hat trick. Why is it called a hat trick? What do you say, eh? Well, in the early days of stage magic, most magicians were also jugglers. A French-Canadian, Jules Pepin, juggled three magicians' hats and was especially popular in Montreal. The hockey hat trick, a very difficult feat, is a comparison to the artistry of juggler Jules Pepin. Top that one, B. You were right in saying that the term originally had nothing to do with hockey, but you've got the wrong country. The hat trick was originally an English cricket term, describing a bowler who took three wickets on successive balls. What's your bluff, see? It's not a bluff. Why can't a hockey term start with hockey? The hat in hat trick is an acronym for Henry Andre Turner, the first hockey player in the National Hockey League to score three goals in one game. A says that hat trick was first used in honor of juggler Jules Pepin. B claims that it was a term from English cricket. And C insists that Hattrick honors the first NHL player to score three goals in one game. Which answer do you think is right? You've got ten seconds to decide.
answer is B. Hat trick was originally a cricket term. But why is it called a hat trick? Because when one player scored three consecutive wickets in a game, he was rewarded either by receiving a new hat or by receiving the proceeds of a hat being passed among fans. <laughs> Somehow I don't think Wayne Gretzky would settle for that anymore. Probably not. By the way, inflation has hit not only player salaries, but also the definition of hat trick itself. Belinda Lerner of the National Hockey League told Imponderables that a true hat trick occurs only when one player scores three successive goals without another goal being scored by other players in the contest. Time for the next question. You've probably noticed that nurses usually wear white. So why do surgeons usually wear blue uniforms? A. This custom goes back before the birth of Christ. Hippocrates, the great Greek physician who gave us the Hippocratic Oath, believed that blue was the most soothing color to patients. Surgeons have followed his advice ever since. B. Actually, surgeons wore different colored uniforms until Florence Nightingale, in the mid-19th century, standardized white as the color to be worn by nurses. Doctors, of course, were not about to wear the same kind of uniforms as nurses, so they adopted the color blue to make sure no one confused them with a member of a lower caste. I guess you, you might as well throw in a bluff, see? You guys with your ersatz history. Surgeons did not wear blue uniforms until well into the 20th century. Before then, they generally wore white. But some anonymous surgeon decided that red blood against a white uniform was needlessly graphic. Somebody just decided that blue was a nice neutral color. A says that Hippocrates prescribed blue uniforms for surgeons. B maintains that the blue color was to separate surgeons from nurses who wore white. And C maintains that the blue color was chosen to neutralize the color of blood. Which answer do you think is correct? You have 10 seconds to decide. The correct answer is C. Florence Nightingale did choose the color white for nurses, both because white symbolizes purity and because white shows any dirt or grime immediately. Surgeons also wore white until 1914 when spinach green was chosen as the color best able to neutralize the sight of blood. Uh, uh, wait a minute. I thought they were blue uniforms. Well, they actually, they were green until around 1960, when they switched to the now popular shade of seal blue. Why the switch? Bernard Lepper of the Career Apparel Institute of New York City told us that seal blue, which contains a lot of gray, shows up better than the old color on the TV monitors used to demonstrate surgical techniques. But the purpose of seal blue is the same as the green, to save doctors, nurses, patients, and others from the sight of blood. I'm starting to feel queasy. Why don't we move on? Your wish is my command. All of our automobile tires eventually wear out. What happens to that tread that wears off of tires? Eh? An interesting question. The vast majority of the tire tread goes up in the air in the form of gas or tiny particles. Scientists have actually discovered large quantities of tread in the lungs of human beings. B? Well, for once you have a little of it, right, A? Yes, some of the tread turns into gas, but the particles that come out of the tire are too heavy to stay in the air. The majority of tire tread blows away from vehicles and settles on the ground near streets and roadways in the form of microscopic particles. See? This is sort of a trick question. The tread doesn't wear out. It wears in. The weight of the automobile forces the tread inward. Unless you peel rubber when driving recklessly or blow a tire, virtually no tread actually comes off a tire. 
A claims that most tire tread goes up into the air and is often ingested by humans. B says that most of the tire tread falls along roadsides. And C insists the tread doesn't wear off a tire, but is ground into the tire. Which explanation do you buy? You have 10 seconds to decide. The correct answer is B. Although oxidation and devulcanization dissolve some of the tire tread into gases, the majority of tire tread can be found by scouring the road signs. While the tread particles are too small to see, they are too heavy to suspend in air. Oh, wait a minute. How do they measure this stuff? With great difficulty. There was once real concern that tread particles were in the air and could be ingested. Hmm. Scientists weren't sure whether worn tread was an environmental danger or not. For once, the news is good. The hydrocarbons in tread aren't dangerous, and since no one can see the microscopic tread debris anyway, nobody seems to care that the tread is lying around. Interesting. Proving once again that what you can't see can't hurt you. Yeah. yeah. Let's push on to a weighty and baffling mystery that I'm sure many of you have pondered. Whenever you open a can of pork and beans, there's always that hunk of pork fat enclosed. Now, why is that piece of pork in the can of pork and beans? What do you think, eh? Easy. It's there to flavor the beans, of course. As the beans are heated, the taste of the pork permeates the beans. Beat that beef. <laughs> the pork doesn't add flavor to the beans. The pork fat keeps the beans from sticking together, much as a saltine cracker keeps salt in a salt shaker from clumping together. Care to respond, C? Come on, A and B. You know that piece of pork does absolutely nothing for the taste or texture. At one time, pork and beans were flavored with large hunks of pork. But now, by law, the manufacturers can call their product pork and beans only if a piece of pork is included. The only purpose of the piece of pork is to make their label legal. The added pork flavor is totally artificial. We have three very different answers. A says that the pork actually flavors the beans. B says that the pork fat keeps the beans from clumping together. And C says that the piece of pork has no use other than to allow companies to legally call their product pork and beans. Which answer do you think is right? You've got 10 seconds to decide. The correct answer is A. That piece of pork, once much bigger, cooks along with the beans, and it does indeed flavor them. Can they call it pork and beans without putting the hunk of pork in the can? If they use rendered pork liquid instead of a solid piece of pork, they can still call it pork and beans. Actually, I've got an imponderable about pork and beans, and that is, what are you supposed to do with that piece of pork in the can? What do you mean? You eat it, of course. Oh, you don't. Sure, it's a delicacy. Oh, great. Now, please, 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 allow me to reconcile your different worldviews. We talked to representatives of all the major name brands of pork and beans, and they agree that about half the consumers eat that piece of pork. Kathy Novak, a consumer response representative at Stokely Van Camp, told us they received quite a few angry letters from customers who opened up a can that inexplicably did not contain that piece of pork. Amazing. I've lost my faith in the culinary taste of this country, for sure. Hey, try it. You'll like it. Now we come to an unpleasant subject, but one that we must address. The subject of houseflies. In the summer, you can't get rid of them. In the winter, you can't find them. 
Where, indeed, do houseflies go in the winter? What do you have to say, eh? Well, flies, like many other insects, lie dormant during the winter in a state of suspended animation. Because, you know, they can't survive cold temperatures. <laughs> That's nonsense. Insects migrate the same way that birds do. They fly south for the winter. <laughs> Good one. Good one, B. Look, there's a much simpler explanation. Oh, yeah? Uh-huh. Almost all flies die during the winter. Enough survive in the form of eggs to perpetuate the species. A claims that flies lie dormant during the winter. B says that flies go south for the winter. And C insists that flies die during the winter. Which answer do you think is right? You have ten seconds to decide. The correct answer is C. The average housefly lives only for a few weeks and cannot survive cold weather. A few flies manage to survive in warm environments, such as barns or homes, where they have access to food and shelter from the elements. B, that was a good bluff about flying south for the winter. Thank but you. Yeah, you're so welcome. But I think you overestimate the flying abilities of a fly. Although they do seem to be called a fly. The average flight range of a housefly is a measly one quarter of a mile. Flies rarely go beyond a ten mile radius of their birthplace during their entire lives. Hey, what about my lying dormant bluff? I almost believe that one myself. Well, actually, many other insects do lie dormant during the winter, but flies are too fragile. Oh, unless you're trying to kill one, in which case they become awfully hale and hearty. <laughs> Time for the next imponderable. The question is, if you turn the volume up high on a shirt pocket radio or cassette player, does it wear out the batteries much faster than if they were on a low volume setting? Eh? Of course it does. Turning up the volume wears out the battery much faster. As a formality, B, why don't you give your bluff? Awfully kind of you, A. The correct answer is that there is a slight difference between putting the volume on high or low, but not enough to worry about. In reality, volume differences have nothing to do with draining the battery of power. All right, well, we have three strong stands here. A says that putting the volume on high will drain the battery significantly. B says it will have only a minimal effect. And C claims it has no effect at all. Only one of them is right. Who do you think it is? You have ten seconds to decide. <laughs> The correct answer is A. Don French, a battery expert at Radio Shack, estimated that a shirt pocket radio would use at least 200% more battery charge at the loudest setting than at the softest. Remember